Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. All right. Um, so we concluded our series on the community last week, and we did so with a sermon on honor. That is, in a culture of contempt and disrespect, we in the church are to honor one another. We are to show respect to one another. Now, this idea or this concept of honor made such an impression on me, and some of you as well, that I want to take it up again. We're going to start a new series next week, so we're sort of in an interim. And our emphasis last week was horizontal. That is, we are supposed to show honor to one another, to our leaders, to our parents, to the elderly, and etc. Now, our emphasis this week is more vertical in nature. The honor that we owe to God as our creator and as our redeemer. And when it comes to God and his honor, Malachi is the place to be. Now, Malachi is not a name, right, as you'd find maybe with like Isaiah or Jeremiah. It's actually a title, and it means my messenger. So this unknown figure who God calls my messenger is in fact the last of the prophets. Remember, God raised certain men to speak to um, his people, to draw them back to himself. And Malachi, or the figure behind Malachi, is the last of these prophets. And his words then close out the Old Testament canon. In other words, what we find in Malachi is the last thing that God has to say to his people before the fullness of time before the dawning of the kingdom of God. So it makes what Malachi has to say quite important. And his message, as you kind of got a a snippet of there, is a series of disputations. That is, it's a series of legal arguments or legal cases that God takes up against his people. So he'll bring a charge against the nation and he'll say, you're dishonoring me. Or he'll say, you are uh, uh, treating the covenant treacherously. And then the people will either dispute it or they'll question it. Like we saw here, how have we dishonored you? How have we despised your name? And then God will respond back and sort of settle matters that are, it's no longer disputable. And he'll call the people to repentance. So this happens six separate times in Malachi. Now what we're going to do is take up two of these disputations that God has against his people, and we're going to look at the ones that pertain to God and his honor most directly. Again, that's sort of the unifying idea here in Malachi is God's honor and how the people have fallen short of that. So we'll look at these disputations first, and then we'll on, the, on following that, we'll look at what our response should be to them, and then we'll close by casting our eyes forward and looking how Malachi um, closes the Old Testament and looks forward to the arrival of Jesus and his work. So, our first disputation begins in verse 6. God asks his people, and specifically the priests, saying, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my honor? respect. So the priests answer back, well, how have we despised your name? 
And so God responds to them. Verse 7, you are presenting defiled food on my altar. Now the priests have one more thing to say, but God swipes it away and launches into a full-scale rebuke against them and what they have made of the sacrifices. However, the sacrifices are secondary. The main concern in this disputation is God's honor. God is not honored, nor is he respected, and his name is despised by the people and by the priests. And so God makes an analogy between himself and our earthly fathers and masters. So if sons honor their fathers and servants their masters, how is it that God, our true father and our true master, goes without honor. How is it, he says, that you can honor them, but not me? So he reasons from the lesser to the greater. If these are worthy of honor, how much more am I worthy of honor? Now, honor in the Hebrew is the word kavod, and it simply means heavy. Honor in Hebrew means heavy. Now, it's a sort of figurative or pictorial word, When a son honors his father and a servant his master, both are respecting the weightiness, so to speak, of their superior. We sometimes use our word gravity in a similar way. Something happens and you'll say, I don't think you understand the gravity of the situation. I don't think you get the weight of what's happening. So honor is our response to people or things that have a gravity, a weightiness about them. They are people of consequence, of importance, of substance, so to speak. Now the opposite of honor, of respecting God's weightiness, is what the third commandment prohibits. This is Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. God says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So if honor, if kavod means heaviness, then vanity, or in the Hebrew, sav, that means emptiness. So something with kavod demands our honor, and something that is sav, something that's light or airy, it can be dismissed without consequence. Right? We can sort of flick it away and then bear no mind to it. Now, profane is another word that the prophet uses. It's chapter 1, verse 12. There are sacred things that are to be held in honor, that are to be revered, that are to be treated differently, and then there are profane things. These are things that we treat as ordinary, that we treat as basic. And this is what God accuses the people and the priests of doing. They are treating his name as a vain thing, and they are profaning his name, treating it as common. So rather than revering his name, that is holding it up, keeping it with due honor and respect, it had become mere emptiness to the people. It had become something mundane, something ordinary, something that it no longer weighs upon them like it should. So sort of turning to ourselves now, A failure to honor God is first and foremost a failure to respond to his gravity, to his glory, to his majesty. It's to treat him as someone or something with no claim on us, something ordinary. His name and his commandments 
are not weighty upon our hearts and minds. Instead, they're afterthoughts. They're things that we can attend to when the real business is taken care of, when I have time for it, or when it's convenient for me, or when I remember. It's not weighty. That's what it means to dishonor God. Now let me ask you a question. What weighs on you? What functions in your life as the center of gravity such that your desires and thoughts and decisions bend to its weight? Now, whatever that thing is, that's your God. Whatever has that ultimate weight in your life, whatever puts everything else in its orbit, that's your God. And that's the place that God must have. So he says, honor me. Now, the people's poor estimation of God's name, it expresses itself first and foremost, and this is pretty obvious, in worship. The priests and the people despised God's name. And therefore, they had no qualms about defiling his altar. Specifically, they presented to God blind, lame, and sick animals. Right? These are the animals that they had no use for themselves. So they go to their herd or their flock and they find and pick out the one animal with a broken leg and a missing eye, and it's not really that useful anyway. Let's take that one and go offer it at the temple. And God asks in verse 8, is it not evil? Is it not evil? Because Leviticus, where God institutes the sacrificial system, he commands that any animals offered to him must be blameless. Meaning, God deserves our first and our best, not our leftovers, not the bit that we can rummage from the drawer and give to him, not the bit that remains after we've used everything else up for our purposes. God, because of his honor, because of who he is, demands our first and our best. So he says, is it not evil? Is what you're offering to me not wrong? And he presses them on this. He says, why don't you take what you're offering to me and go offer it to your governor? Now, at the time, Israel was under occupation. It was the Persian Empire. And the Persian Empire had governors over them who controlled the fate of the people. He says, why don't you take that and go offer it to your governor? God says, verse 8, would he be pleased with you or would he receive you kindly? Now imagine you had a piece of legislation that was near and dear to your heart. Something that you've labored to see established in law since, since you could even dream. You've wanted to see this become the law of the land. And there's only one person, let's say, who could sign this into law. Let's say it was our governor or even the president of the United States. A person with real authority and power who has the ability to make you happy, or to make you absolutely miserable. If you had that one opportunity, how would you approach them? How would you come into their presence? Now, it's a question that hardly needs answering. And yet God asks, will you bring your maimed and one-eyed animals into my presence? God of heaven and earth, creator, redeemer, judge, and expect me to receive you kindly. 
If you won't take it to your governor, why would you bring that to me? And by doing this, by offering these poor sacrifices, the people are cheating God. In verse 14 of chapter 1, he calls them swindlers. That is, people who use deception to cheat others out of their possessions. God is owed our best. Or in this case, God is the people owe God his best. They even promise to give him their best, and yet when the time comes, they present their sickly animals to him. Thus God says, you're cheating me. You're promising to honor me, and you're serving me dishonor. And in fact, God says, it would be better if you didn't bring anything at all. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, God says in verse 10, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. It's better to be silent than to praise and be hypocritical. It's better not to bring any offering at all than to bring something that's half-hearted. God says it would be better if you just shut the whole system down. Now, the consequences for dishonoring God fall primarily on the priests whose duty it is to maintain pure worship. God entered into a covenant with them, and he promised them in chapter 2, verse 5, to give them life and peace, and in turn, the priests would revere him and stand in awe of his name. That was the covenant. God gives life and peace. The priests and the people render back reverence and to stand in awe of God's name. But the priests, verse 8, corrupted the covenant. They tolerated these unworthy sacrifices. They allowed it. They complained, even the priests, how tiresome it was. And they led the people astray in their instruction by showing partiality. So rather than upholding the honor of God's name among the people, making sure that it was treated with dignity and honor, the priests blasphemed God's name. And the consequences of dishonor is dishonor. The consequence of dishonor is dishonor. Look at verse 9 of chapter 2. God says, speaking to the priests, I have made you despised and abased before all the people. I have made you despised and abased before all the people. So listen, when we dishonor God, we dishonor ourselves. Make no mistake about it, it's not God who suffers when we dishonor him. We suffer. C.S. Lewis has got this great line in uh, Mere Christianity. He says, A man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. When we fail to honor God's glory, it makes no difference. God's glory continues on as it always was and it always will. It doesn't harm him. It makes no difference, at least not to him. To us, on the other hand, it does make a difference. It brings us dishonor. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that when humans refuse to honor God, remember it says, although they knew him as God, they refused to honor him as God. Paul says when, they, when we refuse to do that, he says, well, what happens to us? Well, Romans 1.21, humans became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. 
So when we fail to give God his kavod, right, that heaviness, when we don't recognize that, we become empty. God is not emptied of his honor. We are. And our failure to honor God leads us, keep reading Romans 1, to dishonor ourselves in sin and immorality. When that weightiness of God is not at the center of our lives, we become vain. We become dumb and ridiculous, and we dishonor ourselves. And so that leads us to the second disputation, fast-forwarding now to chapter 3, verse 7. Return to me, and I will return to you, God says. And the people say, well, we never left. How are we supposed to return to you? Well, God answers, you are robbing me. Again, the people answer back, how can we rob you, or how have we robbed you? And then God settles the matter, now in verses 8 through 9, in tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. The land does not yield its strength. God carries away the fruit of ground and of vine because of their robbery. They are not honoring God. And God says something similar through the prophet Haggai. He says, you look for much, but behold, it comes to little. And when you bring it home, I blow it away. And why? What's the reason? Why does God do this? He says, because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. It's sort of the same idea here. As dishonoring God's name leads us to our own dishonor, so when we deprive God of what, it, what is his, it leads to our own deprivation. God says, you're not taking care of my house, therefore all your produce, the best of it, I'm taking it away. You're robbing me, therefore the ground is not going to produce its strength for you. So God is the source and the sustainer and the end of all things. All that we have is a gift from his hand. And what that means is that we are never the absolute owners of anything. Our wealth and our possessions are ours on loan. They've been given to us for a time only to be required back in the end. We'll give an accounting. Because God is the owner of all things. He says, the world is mine, Psalm chapter 50, verse 12, and all that it contains. It's mine. Thus, we are to honor God with whatever he has given us, however great or small it may be. We acknowledge his ownership and generosity by returning back to him what was his in the first place. Hence the command Solomon to his son in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9, honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. Tithes and offerings are not simply about supporting the church and its mission. It's about honoring God as our creator and provider. And thus to refuse this is to, or to keep this, is to rob God. Our wealth belongs to him, and yet we're acting as if it were ours. That it were the product of our hard work and not his grace. We take too much credit for ourselves, in other words, supposing our wealth and our produce to come from us. And if that's the, the presupposition, 
If we think of it that way, of course God is not going to be honored. Why? Well, he played no part in it. I did this. I get to keep it for myself. However, when we understand ourselves as stewards and not owners, as creatures and not creators, it creates an obligation on us to honor God, to show him that we recognize him as the one who provides all good things for us. In ancient Israel, I mean, it was way different than now, but imagine they would take the first fruits of the harvest and they would offer them to God. They would burn them to the Lord, the best portions. And it would go to the Lord as a sign, Lord, you are the one who's done this. Same thing with the animal sacrifices. The best portions would be given to God. So what Malachi, the messenger, teaches us is that honor is something we owe to God. He is our Father who created us and sustains us, who withholds no good thing from us. And he is our master, the one who redeemed us from the enemy and brought us under his rule. His glory and his goodness require something from us, and that is our honor and respect. It's the only fitting response to who God is. Now, having considered these two disputations that God makes, let's talk about how we respond to them. We know what a failure of honor looks like, but what does an appropriate response look like? Now, I think the passage suggests three things, or a few things, rather. Now, the first step of honoring God is simply to return. Verse 7, chapter 3, return to me, and I will return to you. But what exactly are we returning to? Well, we are returning to God's honor. Again, remember the covenant that God created with Levi. Malachi chapter 2, verse 5, this is the NIV. It says, My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. When God says return, that's what he's calling us to return to. God has not turned his back. He has no need of repentance because he's upheld his end of the covenant by giving life and peace. We are the ones who have broken trust. The covenant called for reverence, and we answered back with dishonor and disgrace. And so God summons us to return to our end of the covenant, to honor his name. Now, we ought to remember this because, listen, this is what we agreed to in the first place. God set us apart as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. Why? Well, Peter says, so that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, 1 Peter 2.9. That's how it goes. In response to the gospel, we agreed to live a life entirely set apart to the honor of God. Again, that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Or did we agree to something different? Who set the terms of the covenant? Was it God or was it us? Did we agree to, okay, Lord, I'll give you a little bit of this and you bless my life and take away my problems? Or I'll sort of do my time and you take care of the issues in the family and so on and so forth. That wasn't the bargain. That wasn't the covenant. 
we confessed Jesus, we entered the waters of baptism, and when we did so, we confessed him as Lord. He gave us life and peace, and in response, our whole bodies were dunked beneath the water, denoting that all of our life, all that we are, now belongs to him. That it's controlled by one singular purpose, and that is to revere him and to stand in awe of his name. That's the covenant agreement, and that's what we're summoned to return to, to honor the name of God. Now, how can we return? Well, it starts by reappraising the divine name. So to appraise something is to assess its value or quality. So when you buy a home, this is the most obvious example, there is an appraisal before everything is finalized. And it ensures that you're not paying too much or too little, that the mortgage price is fair, and that it accurately reflects the worth of the home. That's what an appraisal is. Now, our problem is that we have unfairly appraised God's name. It's worth far more than what our estimation suggests. It's worth far more than maybe what our lives demonstrate. It's worth far more than our devotion shows. We've wrongly assessed the worth and value of God. So it requires us to return, right? To return and to take a fresh look. And let's be clear. Our appraisals and reappraisals are always going to come up short. As the hymn goes, The eye of sinful man thy glory may not see. Really, the only one who can give us an accurate appraisal of what God's name is worth is Jesus. Because where our judgment is darkened by sin, his is sure. And Jesus shows us in his costly obedience just what the divine name is worth. And it's absolutely staggering. In the Gospel of John, just prior to his crucifixion, There's a moment of profound vulnerability from Jesus as the weight of it all begins to set in on him of what he's about to do. He admits to his disciples, John 12, 27, he says, my soul has become troubled. It's the same words that's used to describe the the waters that are tossed by a storm or people that are stirred up into a mob. He says, my soul is troubled. Even his mighty will is unsettled, is shaken as he approaches the cross. But he adds, what shall I say? 